Am I actually broken? And if I am, can I be fixed? Why did it feel as if my birth created an inconvenience for my father and a burden for my mother? Why is the choice of neglect commonplace for black men? Why are black women forgiven for failing to select better men? Why am I told to distrust the white man when I couldn't even depend on my black father? If the greatest danger to a black man in America is the white man, then why do the most successful black people choose to live among them? Why does my pigmentation determine my aspirations? Why must I live in the past with the pain of my ancestors? Why must I live in the past with the pain of my ancestors instead of creating a future of hope? Why does wanting aspirations of racial togetherness make me a traitor? Why is Martin Luther King Jr. given hero status? But we never listen to our hero's message. Why is forgiveness seen as a weakness and resentment seen as empowerment? Why is white supremacy bad and black supremacy good? Why is hatred seen as subjective instead of objective? Why must black people fit in a box? Why aren't we allowed to decide for ourselves? Why must I fit a narrative? Why must I focus on race instead of class? Why does everyone think that they need to help black people? Why are black people tolerating lowered expectations from the liberal elite? Why must black people be America's charity case? Those are the words from Adam Coleman, an author, an advocate, an activist in many ways, um, and founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. I had the opportunity to talk to him in this particular episode, answering, asking, and getting answers for many of those questions. Sum it up, why are black people tolerating lowered expectations from white liberal elites? And why are black people always deemed America's charity case. We talk about this and much more, particularly the ins and outs and a bit more detail of Adam's story, his personal story and journey. We talk about this and much more in this episode of Changing the Narrative. You don't become what you want because so much of wanting is about living in the space of what you don't have. I believe that we all share this common desire. We all want to be liked. We all want to be accepted. Everything we do in some way considers that fact. You can't play life you don't have a vision. You don't build your character because, you know, you know, letting go of your ego. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome to another edition of Changing the Narrative uh, with me, your host, Jay Shakur. I have the privilege and honor to talk to Adam Coleman, author and founder of Wrong Speak, Wrong Speak Publishing, um, a native of Detroit, uh, and is, I think, uh, saying a lot of the things that I try to say in a more polished, eloquent way. Uh, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you for inviting me. Definitely. I'd like to start off most of my conversations, uh, I guess you could say kind of a game. I say a word, you say the first thing, 
you know, that comes to mind or <laughs> however you think about it. Okay. Sure. All right. Um, <clears throat> let's get started. Um, forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness. Necessary. Hate. Um, ungodly. Family. Uh, important. Religion. Foundation. Masculinity. Necessary. Femininity. Necessary. Justice. Justice. Um, equality. Equality. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so tell me a little bit more about your your backstory. Like what what uh, I know from your interview with Gothics that you were a liberal. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you classify yourself as a conservative, a libertarian. I don't know exactly what how you would classify yourself, if at all. But how, what was your journey like from liberalism, being a liberal, to to what is known as or culturally or politically known as being a conservative? So um, I, some of us like to consider it like a red pill. Um, you know, I think for many people, it's not just one dose. It's multiple doses where you mm -hmm. start waking up and realizing certain things. I would say that um, when I really look back, you notice certain things, but you don't connect the dots. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would notice a narrative, uh, even as a kid within the community, uh, distrust against other people, especially if we're talking about white Americans, the laissez-faire attitude about just casually being racist towards white Americans, that you can just have it any old conversation, uh, any, any black person or family, random strangers. They're like, oh, mm -hmm. look at that white guy over there. You know, just just very casual kind of cavalier attitude. Um, but it was something that I would cast it aside and never subscribe to that that particular way of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was around white people uh, for many years, lived in different types of areas. And my experience was generally positive. I've had some negative, but overall, I think people have negative experiences in, in an area where everybody looks just like them. So um, I always kind of kept that in perspective. I didn't let that be the reason why to, to dislike someone. But from a political sphere, um, when I started getting into politics around the age of 25, I was told that Republicans are racist and uh, Democrats are for the blacks. Uh -huh. And you know the lack of questioning that, that logic, even though I questioned other things in my life, led for me to automatically go down that way. You know, you're, I'm a novice at that point. So I'm just, let me start as a, that as a ground to move forward in politics. But the problem was that by, by defaulting to that way of thinking, I didn't realize how, where my, my trajectory would lead me towards, um, towards believing in, very uh, liberal ideas and liberal policies that actually made me uncomfortable. Um, but once I started to see the amount of manipulation that was happening, once I started realizing the deception from the media, um, you know, I got introduced to Thomas Sowell. I got um, introduced to a couple of books that were very interesting, specifically talking about Donald Trump. And I, you know, when he was elected, I was not a fan whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, but once I started 
looking at certain things, you know, the, the, the Mueller investigation, when they came back and said, um, essentially they had nothing on them, but for two years plus, every liberal outlet that I used to watch would say, this is it. We got him. We got him. Russian collusion. And then uh-huh. that moment comes, Robert Mueller essentially says nothing. And then they said, well, Mueller's a Republican anyways. And they just moved on. And I thought to myself, that's really strange. You know, we're just going to act like nothing happened, you know, uh, crap all over Mueller for, for a week and then just move on to the next, uh, next hoax. Um, and I came across a book called Resistance at Any Cost um, that really broke down things and, and told, told me information that I didn't even know about. So it wasn't even like, um, oh, that's not true. That's not true because of my liberal bias. It was mm-hmm. like, I didn't even hear about this. And then that's what led me down the path of like looking into things for myself. Um, you know, the, the biggest one is good people on both sides that lie you know, that they still repeat to this day. Yeah. And watching the actual footage of what he was saying, I was like, oh man. And it is the best way of putting it. It felt like I had convicted an innocent man to go to prison. Mm-hmm. You know, you start realizing like, I made all these judgments about this person. I was completely wrong. He's not perfect and he's definitely flawed, but he's not, you know, the, the next coming of Hitler, like yeah. the, the media wanted you to believe. <laughs> Um, and he's not some staunch racist. And and the one of the funniest things that happens with the media is they say, will you renounce white supremacy? And they have these montages of him saying, I renounce white supremacy. I renounce, you know, neo, neo-Nazis. And he does that hundreds of times. And they always say, are you finally going to renounce? <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's, that, it's that kind of manipulation. Um, that they're trying to signal to the crowd that he never once renounced it, meaning that it was always that question: Is he part of, you know, uh, the KKK? Then, you know, neo-Nazi? Is he supportive of white supremacy? So there's always that uh, racist boogeyman that they leave behind to control the narrative and control how people feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of veering off a little bit, but well, I, I guess a follow up to that would be. Why do you think they can get away with it? Because, you know, for me watching uh, initially, as you were, I wasn't a fan of Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been into politics since I was, what, 13 years old. But I mm-hmm. never went. And really, to be honest, what got me paying attention to politics was Barack Obama. Um, but when he when Trump came along, I thought, OK, this is just a publicity thing. He'll be mm-hmm. done and he'll be finished. But then it came it became more obvious he's going to probably win the primary Um not sure how election night is going to go, uh, but it looks like he's about to, he's going to at least be close to winning. And the biggest question I had that entire period of 2015 to 20 to the actual election was, how is this man who was in culture, um, if you watch any TV show, sitcom from the 90s, he's, he's mentioned in at least one episode in mm-hmm. most of them uh, or referenced Donald Trump or the Trumps or something. Um, he was on all the talk shows up until really 2011, 2012, 2013. He was mm-hmm. around, um, especially in the black community. He was around known um, friends with very high popular black celebrities. How, how do you think they get away with it? Uh, with almost seemingly overnight making him you know, worse than if not Hitler reincarnate? Well, uh, I think that's a very 
complex answer to give uh, um, as to why. So one, the, the common denominator I always find is the mentioning of race. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what really moves people, and this is actually a good thing, what really moves people to, to, to have some sort of political action is racism. And that's actually a good thing. You know, the acknowledgement that racism is a negative thing. We don't want to have a racist president or racist anybody who's in power. So that on itself is a really positive, positive feeling. And that, and that should actually be something that we should be proud of as Americans, especially knowing the history of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and especially even outside of America, understanding how our view on racism and hatred is actually, um, I don't want to say abnormal, but it's not common in every country. Um, you know, there's there's very biased, hateful, whether it's hateful culture or, or whatever, um, tribalism that happens within other countries um, and other continents. So mm-hmm. our view on trying to eradicate or diminish racism uh, is actually a really positive thing. The problem is that because we feel that way, the people who are in power, the people who are in control, will always leverage that against us. So, for example, it makes me think of the Russians. You know, one of the things that the Russians knew was that our good nature and our free spirit are um, open to discourse. Um, The USSR knew that about us, that we were so open to free exchange of information that they knew that they could supplant stuff like Marxism and communism into our culture because we don't have laws banning, you know, uh, this particular speech. We don't have laws banning this particular ideology. So, you know, they can implant something that will ultimately tear us apart. Um, And that's kind of like our our good nature is kind of our weakness at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're able to leverage racism because our hatred of racism is our good nature. But when people know your good nature, they can always use that as a weakness for you. Um, so when I think of you know the, the political racism, for example, um, the most ridiculous thing recently that happened was the Georgia laws for the voting, voting laws. And when I, I remember first hearing the outrage and I'm like, all right, well, I, at this point, I don't believe anything that the media says. Um, mm-hmm. just by default until they prove otherwise. So I'm like, all right, what are people so outraged about? And I read it and it's the most non-controversial thing I've ever read in my life. You know, usually there's something where like, okay, I can see how someone could manipulate this, but there's mm-hmm. nothing in there. This, this has no teeth whatsoever. And, and it just goes to show that they can leverage black people um, even against other white people and say, you should reject this because it hurts black people. And someone who is good-natured, regardless of uh, you know their political ideology, will say, if that's true and it hurts Black people, we don't want that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's that manipulation of race, the constant mentioning of race, that becomes so so uh, aware. You become very aware that it's happening constantly, over and over and over and over. And you know, anytime there's a tragedy, someone profits. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the death of black men across this country, someone's making money off of it, you know, and some organizations making money off of it. 
You know, there are billion dollar corporations that make money off the narrative of our criminality, victimhood off of politics. They, you know, someone's making money. You know, BLM, for example, God knows how much money they brought in last year. Um, they're making money off of off of our victimhood. And, you know, I think they're able to get away with it because we are so sensitive as a greater society. And Black people allow this to happen because we see ourselves as historical victims. And we are always hyper aware of something, even though that hyper awareness can make us seem paranoid. And, and a lot of times it does make us paranoid. And that paranoia becomes our weakness and we become manipulated. I, I totally agree. So for you, why, why the book? Why, what, I guess the question is what provoked you to say, okay, it's time for me to collect these thoughts, put them together mm -hmm. and write this book? So um, my, I initially wanted to write a book uh, a few years ago. Um, you know, I wanted to leave something behind for my son. You know, he's a, he was a teenager or becoming a teenager at the time. And, you know, I was also like in a personal transformation. I wanted to leave a legacy. You know, I thought to myself, what's one way to stay alive in the world forever? And that's if you leave a, a legacy that can be passed on. Hmm. So, you know, my son is my legacy, but also giving him something that he can carry on to his son and then their son and so on. Um, I thought a book was very apropos. However, I had no idea what to write about. Um, and then uh, George Floyd. George Floyd was the catalyst where, you know, we were all locked down. Uh, so I had time. And the narrative that came from George Floyd, I actually thought it wasn't even going to be as big as it turned out to be. But he became like this worldwide sensation and movement um, that just, it seems so, it seems so toxic and poisonous. That's the best way I can kind of put it. Mm -hmm. And this was before the body cam footage came out. And I was also in the assumption that it's quite possible that the knee was on his neck and that did kill him. However, the reaction towards that injustice, if that was, we're still debating it today with the trial, but let's say that's 100% true. Derek Chauvin killed him. The narrative behind that all black men are always in danger by the police 100% of the time, you got to shield them as they go outside. This fear, this constant fear that they're, they're pushing out there uh -huh. was um, incredibly disheartening and toxic. And it was frustrating, especially for someone who has lived in five states throughout his life. And I've lived in majority white neighborhoods multiple times. I've lived in mixed neighborhoods. And the idea that I'm going to be in danger by the police simply because of the color of my skin and my sex um, was utterly false. And not only was it false just from a personal level, but factually. And so I, I remember going on Facebook and making a very non-biased post. It was a very long post where all I did was put statistics. I was not just like FBI statistics or anything like that. I was literally breaking down what is the difference between like black lives and, and any other life in America? So I was looking at income. Uh, what are the areas that black people live? What's the general income level? What's the difference between married households and single households um, and splitting up our race? 
And even at the end, I said, I'm not making any sort of conclusion, but I think it's important for us to look at all these details because they matter. They, you know, they help to make sense for things. And one of my family members was so outraged by one of the statistics that I put out, even though I, it was a statistic basically stating that more white people um, in total are killed by the police who are unarmed than black people. And I also stated, granted, it is disproportionate based on the population, mm-hmm. but the, the fact still remains that more white people are killed by the police who are unarmed than blacks. But the narrative that people believe is that basically no white people are killed by the police and that every white person who talks back to the cops just gets, you know, (laughs) just let go and nothing ever happens to them. That's white privilege. Um, But they were so outraged, even though I put that disclaimer, acknowledging that the disproportion um, of our numbers, even though in total their numbers are higher, really pushed me to be like, something is wrong here. Someone that's known me Mm-hmm. I'm okay with people being racist or, or, you know, racism. And she said, yes. And I said, then there's nothing to discuss here. Um, and this is someone that's known me my whole life has seen me grow up and was around their family. And, and so it was that kind of thing where I'm like, man, this thing is really deep. Um, and I, and it was very frustrating and I felt like I had to sit down and start writing. So mm-hmm. that's what really, that's what really pushed me. I understand that. I think uh, the the rejection of fact, you know, as of in the last five or so years, this idea of presenting facts, mm-hmm. I've heard that, you know, I've heard, I've been told if you present facts, present statistics, uh, that that's racist. How, mm-hmm. I, how I don't know, but I've, I've gotten that. Um, and it seems to be some sort of cognitive dissonance when you present mm-hmm. the facts, when you say that, by the sheer numbers, more white people are killed by police officers than black mm-hmm. people because the, the mainstream narrative has basically inverted that. It, it causes people, they can't receive it. it, it they can't accept it. Um, mm-hmm. And they try to justify it or ignore it. And most often they ignore it. Um, in the book, you talk, uh, you talk about your journey a little bit. You talk about your story. You open the book with questions. You know, these mm-hmm. are the questions that I have. Um, uh, and when I look at black, you said, I think one of the phrases were, when you look at black culture, you, you have to ask the question why um, behind mm-hmm. certain things. Um, would you say you found answers to those questions in writing this book, or is it something you're still, uh, even post-publishing the book, you're still exploring and developing and learning? I mean, um, it would be ignorant for me to say that I know all the answers or that I'm never learning. Mm-hmm. However, uh, it'd be different if I sat down and wrote this in two months. But I, I spent a, nearly a year of not only writing certain things, but but erasing what I wrote and clarifying mm-hmm. even further and looking up statistics and being curious about certain things. You know, there were times that I would mm-hmm. look up statistics and be like, huh, I, I'm going to prove it right here. And I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And and I omitted that because I can't make that claim if the statistics are wrong. So I just didn't put it in, um, you know. But there is some there is information that I found out that was just interesting, just to know, um, just in general. Like um, I didn't put it in the book, but there's more black women who are in the military than black men. I had no idea, 
you know, well, it, I didn't it, either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was kind of surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was just looking up all this different information to try and find some sort of answer along with just really deep, digging deep into my own life um, and, and looking at the people that I've met. Um, while this book is centered around black people, you know, as you've read in the book, it's not just about black people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, uh, there are times I dive in and say black, and there's times I'm saying men in general or women in general or people, um, because I think th- what's missing in America right now is a message of unification. So I wanted to write this book, if you're a black, to make you aware of certain things that maybe you just weren't aware of uh, that are happening around you and to kind of put you in a position to be semi-vulnerable. And even if you disagree with some things I'm saying, at least you can take away like, well, he makes a point here, but that's all I need. I just need to make a point. You know, my transformation personally started with just one point mm-hmm. and you never know what can come from that. Um, I also wanted to write the book for someone who is white or Hispanic or someone who's not close to American black culture. You know, even if you're a foreigner and you watch the news, you watch CNN abroad, and you're like, why is this the case for black people in America? You can read this book and have a better understanding as to why we are behaving in a particular way. Um, you know, I'm very interested in psychology and human behavior. And while I'm not a psychologist, um, you know, I, I haven't had a lot of disagreements in my assessment or how, or how I assess things just personally. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes a lot of sense. And you know, so far this book has been out just for you know, less than three weeks, but I've had people tell me in chapter two when I describe what it's like to be a broken boy or a broken girl. And I've had mainly women who say, you made me cry because you, you explain my childhood mm-hmm. in these moments. And these are, these are people, uh, these are women who are white, for example. Um, some of them, they don't even live in this country who have told me how, how it brought them to tears, wow. which as a, as a writer, it, it's, that really touches me that I'm able to get them to feel something as they're reading this book. That means that I'm, I'm succeeding. But it also means that the, the issues that are happening for black people are happening for people in general, especially in the West. The disconnection of black Americans from their, their family is also happening for other races. And I, I've met these people personally. You know, I remember one particular time it was myself, um, a, a friend of my fiance's, and uh, you know, the husband of a friend. Um, so the the one friend was a white female, mm-hmm. and the other friend was a a black male. And all of us have father issues, and we talked about how it felt and what it was like, and we all had the same type of issues. Um, and it runs deep, you know, and, and you start realizing the level of neglect and all the hurdles that it places in front of us. It doesn't matter what you look like. Mm-hmm. I agree. I totally agree. I, personally, for me, uh, I grew up without my biological father present, a stepfather present somewhat, mm-hmm. but uh majority of my life grew up without the physical or even just emotional, relational connection to my biological father to this day I don't have it and um, I see person in my life things that could could have been prevented mm-hmm. if he was present or or things that could have been accelerated that 
were delayed because of his absence, things that mm-hmm. I just needed to know about manhood and being a man and all of that. Um, and I think fatherless or father abs, father, I call it fatherlessness, but father absence, to put it in more succinct terms, be it emotionally or physically, however, is a is a huge issue that, as you mentioned, spans beyond being black. While it hurts a lot of the times, and in many cases, disproportionately black people, particularly black men, mm-hmm. um, it, it affects all human beings from all ethnicities, all uh, racial backgrounds. Um, and I don't think it gets talked about enough. It, I agree. It, 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 everything else is talked about, um, but it doesn't get talked about enough. While I, in my mind, in my assumption, or in my conclusion of the, of the whole George Floyd thing, while it was tragedy, while it was sad, while I do think, I don't necessarily think there's an issue of, because number one, the statistics just doesn't bear it out, but mm-hmm. just personal experience, I don't think it's an issue of police targeting black people. I don't uh-huh. necessarily see that as an issue, as we've mentioned. But I do think there's something to this thing where people get a badge and a gun, particular, and then they have go on a power trip, and mm-hmm. they take advantage of it. There's a such thing as as a bad cop, but that doesn't mean we demonize the entire uh, profession of being a police officer. Just like they're bad doctors, but we don't say, you know, forget all doctors, let's let's defund all hospitals. We don't do that, you know. Um, yeah. And so, I think because we don't talk about fatherless, fatherless, fatherless fatherlessness or or father absence enough and we mm-hmm. relegate many of the issues just we just generally relegate everything to either racism and hate or to um or to something else uh what culture has pushed everything now to somehow being racist i, mm-hmm. I read an article the other day about pete Buttigieg, who i think is the transportation secretary and he quite literally attempting to make an argument about how highways are racist and <laughs> and how that happens i don't know now are is the infrastructure not up to date in certain cities and certain areas of course should it be yes should we work on that yes because it benefits everybody but mm-hmm. to say it's racist I, you know i think that term racist and the term racism and all these terms white supremacist and nazi and even fascist and communist those terms are, are being used so much that they're becoming meaningless uh, and they don't have yeah. the same effect um, that they, that they could or should have. Um, what would you say in your, in your research and your study and your writing, what would you say you found to be, the, to be the psych- you're not a psychologist, obviously. So mm-hmm. you know, we're not trying to diagnose or, or anything, but what would you say just on your cursory view is the psychological or a bit of what you understand about the psychological underpinnings of, of this woke phenomenon. And when I'm, when I say that, I mean like first mm-hmm. black people vote 90 plus percent Democrat. Uh, we've done that for the last 50, 60 plus years when number one, they tip most Democrats typically go against our values just innately as a community. They don't mm-hmm. support some of the same things that we support. Like Joe Biden for instance, is staunchly against charter schools. But right. if you survey and ask black parents, are they for charter schools and school choice? They will say yes. Mm-hmm. But yet we voted 90 plus percent for this particular politician. What would you say is the psychological underpinnings of that? I've attributed to cognitive dissonance. All right. So the, the best way to try to approach this slightly from a historical perspective. So, you know, granted, I wasn't alive, but let's let's go back to um, 
Jim Crow era. So Jim Crow era, you know, you could argue that we were invisible in some ways, or we were either left out of the conversation in American society, at least in part of the country. Um, and our treatment was ignored. So then you have the civil rights era and then the passing of uh, the Civil Rights Act. That is our recognition of our treatment and our, our negative treatment. The problem is that culturally we've gotten used to um, seeing being pandered as being cared for. So if we are, um, if they say black people, our ears perch up and it's like, they're talking about us, but you know, um, you know, it reminds me of like those 1990 comedy movies where the nerd thinks that he's in with the cool kids because they called him over and say, Hey, what's going on? Meanwhile, they're trying to play a prank on him. And that's, what's happening with us. You know, the elite, you know, uh, the political elite, the media elite, they are the cool kids and we are acting like the nerds who are constantly wanting the attention. Mm -hmm. And so they say reparations and we say, yeah, yeah, give us reparations. Um, and we look very desperate for someone's attention. Meanwhile, all we need to do is hit the gym and believe in ourselves and we don't need to hang around the cool kids who are using us. So, you know, there is this constant want, this constant pandering and, and the pandering uh, gets so, it becomes so obvious that other black people take part in the pandering too. Um, so the Al Sharptons, you know, the Benjamin Crumps, um, you know, their countless amount of black media people, um, the Roland Martins, you know, they will pander to black people and they'll wear African garb and say, you know, remember your history, remember where you come from and constantly remind you of your trauma. And, and you know, it's that constant rehashing of trauma and that constant pandering that really keeps us in a state that we haven't changed. And it makes us ignore, like you said, if you broke down policy by policy, we're generally kind of middle of the road or conservative about certain things. But if you leverage on race, well, that's a different story. And so with us, race always comes first. You know, everything else is fifth. Like there is no second. Race is first. Yeah. Um, and so if race is first, who is sticking up for our race? Well, the people that are always calling out our name. All right, so the, it's the Democrat Party at this point. So that's why we are in the position politically to always lean towards the Democrats. The Republicans, and I've always said this, the Republicans are generally conservative and conservatives see your color, but they don't care about it as an ultimate determination of who you are. They recognize our history, but they don't let our history determine who I am as a individual and who you are as an individual. We have nothing to do with each other. Just like a gangbanger who ends up in jail has nothing to do with Adam Coleman, you know, just because we share the skin color. It'd be the same if I said, well, you have blue eyes and Susie has blue eyes. Y'all must know each other and believe the same things. It, it's just as arbitrary as anything else. Um, and it's why it really makes no sense when you see someone who's from Africa come over to the United States and all of a sudden they're African-American, but they're like, no, but I'm from Ghana. I'm Ghanaian, you know? So you have all these different, yeah. um, you know, political correctness that are constantly trying to lump us together and make our history all the same. Um, and, and they use that against us. 
I, I agree. Um, one thing I've noticed, particularly with the Ben Crumps and the Al Sharptons of the world, mm-hmm. is to them it does not matter. Um, the I live in Chicago. I'm in Chicago right now. Um, uh, and it does not matter the the exponential amount of violence that occurs in this city alone uh, in the Black community with Black people. It boggles my mind that 13% of the population can account for nearly almost 60%. It's a little under like 54 or something like that. 54, mm-hmm. I believe this is the number, um, of violent crimes in the country. 13% mm-hmm. of the population of this mm-hmm. of the American population. It boggles my mind that every week in Chicago, someone, particularly a black person, a black child is killed. Um, mostly by accident, but but regardless of the reasoning, it's still a tragedy and it's still wrong. Um, and nothing gets said about it. Like we know George Floyd's name, right? But we mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure many black people or many people in general in the country don't know the name of Legend Talaferro. Um, I believe was he was a he was a kid under 10 years old, shot, uh, killed. Um mm-hmm. Sicoria Turner is another example of that. And so we don't know those names, but again, we do know the names of George Floyd. And I think it's a, it's a, it's something there with this idea of, and you mentioned this before, you mentioned this uh, in your writings of, of death and particularly black death and seeing it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Project Veritas, but they just did like a, a whole yeah. expose on CNN. And one of the things, very telling things that this, the, one of the executives said was that fear sells. Um, mm-hmm. And I think part of what, what is, is creating this echo chamber of victimhood uh, and oppression, particularly in the black community, is this constant uh, onslaught of fear being pushed, right? Um, if it's not George Floyd, you have to, you know, you have to be scared of police and, and all of that. If it's not that, you know, then you have to be fearful of the racist white Republicans who are trying to <laughs> take your voting rights away when really, if you read the actual bill, they probably ex- expand it a little bit on some right. of, of already set procedures. So I, I guess I want to ask, do you feel that there's any hope <laughs> uh, any and, and, I, and I, I say that because the way culture is going, um, I personally uh, I, I don't see any. I don't. I think it'll have to get worse before it gets better. But the way culture is going, it's, it's as if those who are who have the courage, the 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 sense to to, to tell the truth, are either shunned, ignored, uh, or whatever. But do you feel that there's any any hope that we'll get more to? To any true unity, because you know that's a buzzword. But is there any hope for that? So um, I'm optimistic. You know, some days I, I feel less optimistic, but in general, I'm optimistic. So one of the reasons why I'm optimistic is that me and you are sitting here talking about this, and this conversation probably wouldn't have happened ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the amount of people, you know, even though I don't necessarily classify myself as Republican the amount of black Republicans that it did exist years ago was extremely small. And one of the great things that happened during the Trump administration was getting um, black people to say, hey, you know what? The Democrats are kind of funny. Let me see what Trump is trying to do. And I personally believe that, um, I mean, for one, without the virus, Trump would have won. I agree. Uh, 
<laughs> I agree. Uh, you know, we had the best economy and God knows how long. And not only for just Americans in general, but, but for black Americans, jobs were increasing. Um, so, I, and I always go back to economics. It doesn't matter what anything else is going on. People will ignore it as long as economics are good. So, you know, with Trump and the economics going well, he woke up a lot of black people. And I started seeing way more black Republicans, way more black conservatives just speaking out. And even if they were generally, um, you know, tried to be cast aside, they weren't necessarily being cast aside. You know, I would say years ago, they would be completely ignored. We wouldn't know the Candace Owens of the world. Now, Candace Owens, even if you hate her, you got she's got your attention. And, and there are times that I've seen where people say, I don't really like her, but she makes a point here. Yeah. And that's, that's all it takes. You make one point and that makes people think. Um, so, and, and also I think about just people in general, people in general are more middle of the road than anything else. You know, when you get people mm -hmm. alone, they're, they're generally middle of the road. They might have one thing here, one thing here. And I think our media and social media highlights the extremists in our society. So, for example, me writing this book, I wasn't writing for, you know, the feminists of the world. I wasn't writing for the far leftists or, or anybody like that. I was writing for the average person, the average middle of the road person. And writing for them makes a lot more sense for them to speak up and realize what is going on. And I think also to kind of bring it back to Trump, because it happened for me, the way that they went so overboard with Trump made me realize how dishonest they really are. And it made me really think about certain things in the past. And you know, the biggest thing I always go back to is weapons of mass destruction. And we always forget that part, but we tore apart a whole region of the world because of weapons of mass destruction and chasing the Taliban um, and, and going into countries that he, you know, some of the Laden wasn't even in. Um, so it was, it's that kind of failure from the media and learning about how the media works alongside, you know, members of, of the, uh, the CIA or the government in general, how, how it's just one big club. And Donald Trump was not part of the club. He was economically rich, but he wasn't elite, and he wasn't part of the the uh, the government elite, uh, the political elite, and they wanted him out. Both parties wanted him out, and best believe that Mitch McConnell also wanted Donald Trump out because now they can go back to business as usual. Mm -hmm. um, but am I optimistic? Yeah, I'm I'm optimistic because I think the people who are in charge the past four years really showed their hands. I think. For years, people like uh, me and you were able to miss certain things because they were subtle, but they went extreme um, the past four years, and it made it makes us rethink what has actually happened previously. So I'm I've become way more skeptical, but a good skeptical <laughs> because of it. Um, so I think there is hope. I think there is hope, and. Um, I, I think there's hope for unification. I think there's hope for black Americans just in general, but I think there is hope. Okay. Yeah. Very optimistic. I, I, 
I some days I am, some days I'm not as well. Yeah. Uh, I just really at this point I don't know because it seems as it, when things are getting back to quote unquote normal or at least steady, something else happens. You know, mm-hmm. um, hitting on your point with the elite or or elitism, something mm-hmm. that I did not understand about politics about this whole cultural thing is this aspect of the elites. Um, And I think, as you mentioned, I think Trump helped really Trump just being Trump as imperfect, as flawed as he is. um, Mm -hmm. He, by nature being who he is, helped expose this. If it was his intention, I don't know, but he, he helped expose this, this sense of, of, I like to say it like this. The reason a Bush and an Obama could easily get along Mm-hmm. is not because of of true unity. Uh, obviously, their politics were completely different. They saw the, the role of government completely differently. We understand that for the most part. But mm-hmm. the reason they could easily get along, or more so easily get along than a Trump and Obama could, was because they were a part of that 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 in crowd. They were part of the club, right? Mm-hmm. They, to some extent, to some aspect, they were part of the of the of the in crowd. But Trump comes along, who's who, as you mentioned, I think that's perfectly said, who had the money to be a part of the elite crowd, but wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that as almost, I see it as almost the media saying, "Okay, you're not going, you're not going to. You once were a part of us. You were in our circles, at our parties, and all of that. And we were at your parties, and all of that. You mm-hmm. were in our circle, but you're going to." In many ways, turn your back on the elites to 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 what to to help make America great again, and to or at least that's what you say, or to 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 cut taxes and to do these different things. Okay, mm-hmm. we're going to make sure you pay for it by ruining your reputation, or at least temp, att- attempting to do so. Um, going back to your book and your story, um. What is it about personally your story? Because you get into a lot of the book, you you share a lot of information. Some of it I did know, some of it I did not know, um, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. Um, it, some of it, and it wasn't the type of book where, you know, you're going to get all of your assumptions or theories confirmed, right? It's a book where it's going to, it's going to it, it will validate some of the things that you know, but it will also make you think and connect some dots. Um mm-hmm. But what is it about your personal story uh, that you really want to come across above everything in this book? So, um, you know, my personal story of just having uh, having ups and downs, um, you know, feeling like a victim at times, a, a victim of circumstance, um, but just carrying on that victimhood, um, you know, being depressed, having panic attacks, um, experiencing agoraphobia, all these things are um, are mental issues that I'm experiencing, but there are things that I am able to control. But when you don't believe that you have control over it, they, they persist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it took years to kind of realize that how I was behaving and how I was acting and how I was interpreting things, I was acting as a, I'm a victim, um, even though I had legitimate things that happened in my life that weren't good, but I think that we all do. And I started to understand that, um, you know, the determination of a man is about how he reacts to a situation. 
um, or you can extrapolate to from man to person, doesn't matter if you're a man or woman, how you handle that situation really shows your character. It shows your fortitude. And, uh, you know, I also talk about aspects of God and how accepting God into my life, uh, which was a struggle for many years, you know, uh, for, for many years, I wasn't an atheist, but I would say I'm agnostic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is basically just saying, I don't know which way to go on this. Um, but it's those struggles. Um, and, and it coincide with my return of faith and also coincide with my maturity and, and, um, and as a man accepting my masculinity as a strength, as a positivity, uh, because for many years I was acting as a, a feminine man, uh, acting very weak and I was getting ran over multiple times, especially in relationships. Um, so there, I try to throw my story in uh, purposely because I want people to understand uh, a personal lesson and how it mixes in when I'm talking about black culture. So, you know, feeling like a victim starts on an individual level. So I'll just use my story as an individual, but imagine if a community feels like a victim and how they would react and how they would behave. It's so, um, it's so strong victimhood. What makes it worse is that, you know, on an individual level, no one was necessarily coming to me personally and pandering to me, uh, which allowed for me to kind of escape feeling like a victim. Eventually, it was just work on my part. But imagine if you have the ultra wealthy, the influential, the powerful people constantly reminding you of your trauma and your pain. It makes it really hard to escape that victimhood narrative. Um, and so that's why I, I wanted to start from an individual level, extrapolate it to a community level, uh, you know, or in this case, a racial level, and, and, and also from like a human level. You know, there's a, uh, I, I talk about dependency, you know, government dependency, um, you know, and usually when you say that, you're like, oh, you're talking about welfare. That's partially, but our dependency to look towards the government to solve all our problems puts us in a position of weakness, not strength. And it says that we can't do for ourselves unless someone does for us. And it's that weakness, it's that losing of agency that I'm extremely worried about when it comes to black Americans. That agency needs to return and we need to understand that we are powerful and government is not our solution. The idea that government will solve everything for us has been a failed experiment since the civil rights era. Getting the government and, and I want to make this real clear. The government restricts. The government doesn't grant. We have God-given rights. It's just a matter of does the government restrict those rights or are they going to step away and, and keep their hands off our rights? When we went to the government during the 1960s or the Civil Rights Act, it's because the government was restricting our rights. And we were saying stop restricting our rights. Jim Crow laws are immoral. to set a level playing field. What, what, what that stemmed from and what people who, uh, you know, the, let's not, let's not say Al Sharpton, but the Jesse Jackson, because Jesse Jackson was the right-hand man uh, or one of his right-hand mans for Martin Luther King. We started looking towards leadership. We started looking towards government. We said, well, the reason we ended up in this position because not enough black people are in office. Well, that, that doesn't mean anything. There's not... There's barely any Asians in office and they're economically ahead of white people. 
So, you know, the, the idea that government relates into our success is a failed experiment. It hasn't worked out for us ever. And you look at some of the most decrepit, falling apart cities in this country, and I've looked at all the statistics, the amount of corruption, you know, the arrests of public officials, all of these different things, they're all black. So the idea that your skin color means that you care about me just because we happen to look similar means absolutely nothing. These people who end up in these roles, they could, they could be rag to riches situations, but they end up in these roles. And guess what? They're now part of the political elite. And a lot of times they care about what tax, uh, what tax rate you're in rather than, uh, you know, what you look like. And so, you know, I use the example of rolling into your ghetto or rolling into your hood in a, in a Mercedes and say, yeah, those black people got to stick together. You know, the cops out here are racist. And then they get back in their car and go back to the suburbs in the white neighborhood and they walk, they wave at their, you know, Officer Dan, what's going on, Officer Dan? Because he doesn't believe any of that nonsense. Yeah. You know, he knows the truth. The truth is about economics. It's always been about economics and class. You know, if you got enough money, you get treated right. You know, and it's yeah. very rare. We, we like to throw around the trope, you know, uh, a black man get pulled over in a Mercedes. No, like that's that you're getting pulled over in a Mercedes. Let's say that's true. That's extremely rare. Let's mm -hmm. just be honest. If you're in the right neighborhood and you got the right car and the right amount of money, and you dress a certain way. No one's bothering you. Like and that's that's the truth of the matter. And this idea that all black people in every situation is treated the same exact way, no matter their economics. And I'm supposed to look at LeBron James, for example, <laughs> as some sort of victim. And this guy lives in one of the richest, widest areas that you could you could ever imagine. This man is the elite of the elite um, economically and also with clout. And I'm supposed to look at him as some sort of victim when he gets on camera and starts, you know, uh, you know, weeping about, you know, this keep happening to us. Like, you like the, all of this is ridiculous. Yeah. And, it, and it's insulting that he believes he can get away with it, but it's also a shame that he does get away with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I just think that the, the realization that there is a, the real division is not a racial division. The real division is a class division. Mm -hmm. And it don't matter if they're black, white, Hispanic, whatever, if they are part of a certain group, they're more likely to feel a certain way about certain people. So we can use Barack Obama, for example. This man went to, uh, I believe he went to Harvard and he went to Columbia. Mm -hmm. What makes you think he's not part of the elite? You know, when he came into office and we discovered that all these banks did bad loans and, and, and you know, they caused this huge economic crash. What does he do? Nothing. He says, don't do it again. And then they write laws to basically say that, hey, you don't have to come for us for a bailout. You could just keep printing money. You know, so they all pat each other on the, on the back. But we looked at Barack Obama as our black savior. Like, he's the reason why we can now do anything that we want to do. And it's that admiration of government, this belief that government is savior um, and, and government is a solution, this begging of reparations, all of it. Um, all of it just says that the individual is incapable unless daddy government does it for us. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. I've, I've always said that I think all human beings 
have some type of faith, right? You may not be mm-hmm. a Christian, a Muslim, or any of the traditional religious beliefs or be a part of any of the traditional religions, but I'm pretty sure to some extent you have faith in science or you have mm-hmm. faith in something. And typically, um, and for many, that faith ends up in the hands of government or mm-hmm. politicians or a certain type of politician or a celebrity or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think all human beings have some type of faith. It's just a matter of where their faith is placed. Um, you talked a, a lot about uh, elitism. You talk a lot, talked a lot about the elites. Um, where do you foresee, this is the last question, then I, I, I want to bring it home, but mm-hmm. in your writings, in your pro- public presentation of yourself and your ideas, what has been the biggest misconception and what would you like to correct? What would you like to correct on record about that, if anything? Um, yeah, I have a whole chapter talking about the misunderstanding and miseducation of Black conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use my story as an example of being a former liberal and my viewpoint and how I got into politics and basically what I told you earlier and what I was told about conservatives or Republicans. But the reality was that I had never actually had a one-on-one conversation with a conservative to ask them how they felt. And it wasn't until, um, you know, by chance I ran into a conservative who I respected. He was a uh, British conservative. He introduced me to Thomas Sowell. And I'm thinking to myself, after I'm, I read, um, was it uh, uh, the book, uh, Black Rednecks? Um, yeah, my favorite, yeah. Yeah. After reading that book, and I'm like, man, I never, I never heard of this guy. How is it that I've been into politics for ten plus years, and I've been alive for you know three decades, and I've never heard of this man? And that had me really questioning things about how we, um, how we approach conservatism, what we are told about conservatism. You know, I'm an I'm an admirer of Martin Luther King. You know, I have a bunch of you saw in the book, I have a bunch of quotes from Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. You know for everything that's being said, he's a social conservative. Um, you know, his belief in self, belief in the individual, um, his belief in God, you know, he, he sounds like a Christian conservative, if you ask me. Now, I've heard stories about him advocating for like socialism and stuff like that. That's a different story. Um, but a lot of times when we're talking about things, we're talking about social, a social, um, a social aspect. The, the misunderstanding, the biggest misconception is how we view black conservatives, how we view black libertarians, how we view basically non-liberal blacks. And what I think people are unaware, of, uh, they're, they're unaware of two things, the laissez-faire name calling that can happen in public forum about them. You can call Clarence Thomas and Uncle Tom, all you want. You will never lose your job. You will never lose your your publication. You'll never lose anything. You'll be right back on the air. Even if a couple of people are like, I can't believe you said that. Guess what? You you won't get fired. Nothing will happen to you. It is that that constant allowance of degrading someone just because they have a slightly different approach to life than you. And I don't think people realize how common that is and how laissez-faire that is, especially in a very public forum. Um, 
So there's there's that one aspect. The other aspect is, and, and I feel, as I was writing it, I felt really regretful. You know, a great man like Ben Carson, um, who went from failing in school, growing up in poverty, to reshaping his life to become one of the best surgeons in the world, is now just an Uncle Tom and we cast him to the side. Um, Carol Swain, who was a high school dropout, who went back to school to and, and became a professor to teach at Vanderbilt and, and other um, high-level institutions, to reinvent herself in such in such a uh, scenario as a child, you know, growing up in a house where you had to, there was no indoor plumbing, you had to go outside to an outhouse. Like she came from extreme poverty within America, and she's able to make something of herself. Mm-hmm. These are stories that we should be highlighting. And we're always looking for the first black this, the first black that, or clap our hands when a black person achieves certain things. But we essentially have a group of black people that have achieved monstrous achievements that we just completely ignore. Clarence Thomas is a perfect example, coming from poverty to end up in a position that is extremely exclusive. And and it's a lifetime appointment. And we ignore this because he is conservative. If he was liberal, more liberal-minded, we would be applauding him. He would be on our our, our walls alongside Obama and Jesus. Yeah, black Jesus. No, black Jesus, exactly. <laughs> but, but we completely ignore them we, and we cast them to the side. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Um, but, I, but basically, you know, as I'm writing this, especially with Ben Carson, you know, learning about him, you know, it brought me to my tears. It brought me to tears at, at one point because like, mm-hmm. man, I really just pushed this man as, to the side and ignored who he was and the accomplishments and his story simply because he wasn't on my team. And, and I think that is a, that is a huge gaping uh, hole that I think black Americans are missing out on. Um, you know, these, these are great people who achieve great things and they deserve just as much recognition just as anybody else. Mm, I, I totally agree. I think um, Tim Scott is another example. I think mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, I've read this, I don't know the exact phrasing of it, but I don't remember the exact phrasing of it, but I think, I think Tim Scott, who is currently a Senator um, is the first black person to be elected to both chambers of Congress. Um, mm. And the way he is, and you can fact check me on that, but the way he is lampooned, I know for sure he's the only black Republican senator right now, but um, the way he's lampooned and caricatured, um, much like a Clarence Thomas or Ben Carson, is extremely disheartening. Um, um, and it's not like Clarence Thomas or Ben Carson are doing or saying anything crazy or, or out of the norm or anything. They're really giving, in my opinion, common sense, uh, common sense arguments and common sense uh, stances, you know, uh, from the sense that you get from Ben Carson is work hard. If I can mm-hmm. do it, you can do it. Um, you get the same sense from a Tim Scott who believes all we need is an, is not necessarily the quality of outcome, which I don't think you can logically or humanely guarantee, but right. you need the equality of opportunity. Once you give the opportunity, the sky is the limit. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing with Clarence Thomas. Those are positive messages that you would want, particularly young children, to hear and to mm-hmm. be affirmed in. Uh, and 
it's it gets ignored or gets looked down upon or 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 caricatured as something uh that it's not you know uh but yet someone who probably don't who probably doesn't believe what you believe or will will probably work to implement policy that's against what you believe or want or desire is upheld just because they have a pig, they have pigmentation in their skin. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's the two, it's the two ends of the spectrum that I think if we were find the middle ground and say, you know what? Okay. You may view this, this way. You may consider yourself concerned. I may consider myself a liberal or moderate or whatever, but we get together and we say, okay, this is the end result that we want. I think, you'll see, at least in the political discourse, you'll see a bit more uh, of that unity. And I also like to say that although I work in media, I'm a reporter, um, if people just turn off the news for a little bit, we'll be a much, much happier <laughs> country. Much, much happier. Yeah. Um, the title of the book is Black Victim to Black Victor, Identifying the Ideologies, Behavior Patterns, and Cultural Norms that Encourage a Victimhood Complex. Uh, great, great book. I'm not finished with it. Um, but from what I've read so far, it is amazing. I'm sure I, I won't be disappointed. Uh, thank you for writing this book. Uh, thank you. you. Say, again, you say everything I attempt to say uh, in a much more polished and eloquent way. Uh, great book. Can't wait for all this. All those, this was just released. Can't wait for your next work and, <laughs> and to dive into and find out more about your other works. Uh, where can people reach you? Where can people get in contact with you? Yeah, so um, I'm on basically all the platforms. So uh, for one, you can go to my website, which is www.wrongspeak.net. Um, and and what I've been doing is just writing articles um, and publishing maybe like uh, two to three articles a week, um, my, either myself or I get other contributors who want to speak openly. You know, I'm, I'm all about free speech as long as it is thoughtful and I try not to be extremely biased when I when I write certain articles, but I want to be thought provoking as I as I do so, and I encourage the same from other people. So you can go to wrongspeak.net uh, to find other writings for myself. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I go under wrong underscore speak. Um, my Facebook page. You can go to facebook.com/slash Coleman Writes. Um, you can reach out to me that way. Um, a lot of the contact information you can find on the Bronx Speak website. I do a lot of operating through through there, um, and and just to, just to also add, you know, this book. And I want to make it clear to anybody who's listening: this book is centered around Black Americans, but the underlying story is fortitude. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an outlining of things that are happening for everybody, um, while Black people are used as the example within the book. It's relatable to anyone. Um, and and ultimately, I know you said you're not finished with the book, but there are nine chapters that outline resolutions, or I should say solutions. And these are solutions, not only for black Americans, but for Americans in general. And the, what I wanted to really highlight is the possibility of bringing people together, unification. So if you're someone who's black, you can give this to a white person to have them understand. If you're someone who's white, you can give this to a black person to have them understand. This book is for everyone. I, I agree. Uh, just read from what I've read so far. It is. Uh, I view it as, like you mentioned, black people or, or the black community is used, which I don't like the term, but black community is used as a case study 
if you mm -hmm. will, for these broader truths um, of really a phenomenon that affects just all human beings, either being a victim or being mm -hmm. a victor, choosing victimhood, choosing to, to just lay down and let life happen to you or let, let you actually live life instead of life live you. So exactly. thank, thank you again. Great, great um, approach. I hope, I, would, I know I'm recommending this book um, to anyone who asks about it. And if, even if they don't ask about it, I'm going to recommend it. I think it's an amazing read. I think thank it's you. succinct. Um, and so I'm going to try to get this book into as many hands as I possibly can. Um, again, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I appreciate you for, for giving me some of your time. I appreciate it. Anytime, anytime you want me on. Definitely. I definitely plan to have you back. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. You don't become what you want because so much of wanting is about living in the space of what you don't have. I believe that we all share this common desire. We all want to be liked. We all want to be accepted. Everything we do in some way considers that fact. You can't play life if you don't have vision. You don't build your character because, you know, you know, letting go of your ego. Thank you for listening.